I'm Karen Filipkowski, and this is the second episode of the Madawaska Valley Public Library's new podcast, Old New Borrowed Blue. It's brought to you this week with the help of the Opiongo Line and Station Keepers Madawaska Valley, both dedicated to promoting and preserving our local heritage and culture. And what better place to do that than at our local library? This week we have another great show, complete with an old story about the unique history of Barry's Bay our top 10 list of new books and events happening at the library this month, a rundown of interesting things being borrowed, and, last but not least, another wonderful story from Andrew Lang's Blue Fairy Tale book. We promised you last month that we'd bring you an old story with each new episode and drawn from some of the local newspapers we keep on microfilm and that you're more than welcome to come in and look at for yourselves. This week we have something very special. While thumbing through a November 24, 1960 edition of the Barry's Bay Review, we stumbled across a very interesting and quite unique feature story entitled The History of Barry's Bay, a stopping place on the old Opiongo Road. It will take us more than a few episodes to get through it all, but it is certainly one interesting read. Whoever the author was, no byline was attached to the story, She or he was an excellent writer back in 1960, and not writing from a point of view you might expect for the times or the place. A sensitive environmentalist, a strong supporter of Indigenous culture, and somebody who certainly knew their local history. Here now is part one of The History of Barry's Bay, read by James DeFure. This is the story of Kawanash Naishin. That's Algonquin for a beautiful bay on the turbulent Madawaska River. The local white settlers call it Barry's Bay, but from the far reaches of the past, this peaceful cove was a place of rendezvous, a powwow land, not for the purpose of war, but a happy summer hunting ground where southern bands of aboriginals from Papineau Lake feasted on the beauty and the fruits of a lavish and unspoiled nature. Air, land, and water are filled, have always been replete, with life abundant, varied, beautiful, and majestic. These, perhaps, if left to the original possessors, would never have changed. It is the white man who changes the face of this earth. We are going to attempt to bring alive again the people and the things of other days, happier days. Our purpose is to record the history of Barry's Bay in the changes that have been wrought, but first things first. Aboriginals were here centuries before the first voyager, bearded and white, ever cast their eyes over this bay. Tribal bands came to the Kuanash Nyishing year after year in order to bolster their physical strength, fatten their bodies on grouse, fish, venison, and nature's sweets, such as blueberries, that were so abundant here. Wigwams were pitched along the bay and on the island in the bay. This was the summer headquarters of the Papineau tribes. On the sites of these encampments, Primitive hunting tools such as arrowheads and skinning knives of stone have been discovered. Moreover, it seems that these roving tribes exercised their inventive powers, along with hunting, feasting, and resting. Having located a deposit of clay in the vicinity and remembering the legends and practices of their ancestors in Asia, they set to work to fashion pottery and bake them in their campfires. This pottery was for use in their simple domestic needs. The samples that have been found around the bay bear this out. It is presumed, for it was their custom, that Aboriginal women did this pottery work, while able-bodied braves went hunting and on trips of exploration. The environs of our village are dotted with lakes and streams. 
These gave to the original explorers a varied and ample field for their skill with bow and arrows. All this in a comparatively short distance in any direction from their encampment. The surrounding hills have long since been denuded of their pines that once sheltered these gorgeous bodies of water. But these surrounding lakes and streams are there today, much as they were centuries ago. Few of the youthful inhabitants of the village today know of these beauty spots and care less. That is, if we judge by the litter of carelessness, broken bottles on the beaches, etc., that we sometimes find around these lakes, and the many tales that are told of so-called depredations. The poacher, they say, knows these lakes and streams well, but his quest is not for the rapturous beauty, soul peace, and proper relaxation that such lakes and rivers and streams afford. He would glut his cravings for something that does not cost anything. Like the local farmer who rigged up a tower in the marsh near a lake, so the story runs, he equipped himself with a long-range flashlight and rifle, and at nighttime during one summer killed 14 deer. And another fellow from town, who was alleged to have assisted the government in stalking a lake with fingerlings a month later, returned one night to net 160 fish. What he did with them is a deep mystery, they say. The hunter of anything that flies, hops, or runs is well acquainted with these pleasure nooks, I'm told, but visits them only to wreak destructions, just for the fun of it. All this, to me, seems incredible, and not at all like the gentle people I've met. We know the Indians hunted and fished for their needs only, and thus a happy balance was kept in nature. It was done so that plentiful nature could come again, as it had for centuries. It was a time when, after dawn, the glorious summer sun is rising over the pine-lined horizon of the low hills to the east. A light birch bark canoe, with its curved and beaded bow, glides out from the western shore of the island, streaking for a cove on the western mainland. Two youths with bronze bodies, redder still in the morning sun, are flashing their paddles in rhythmic strokes as they rapidly cross the bay. They are heading for Greenan's Creek. The Indians undoubtedly had their own name for that creek, and it must have run something like this. The river that goes to Manitou's Lake Heaven. It could have been, for the native had an aptitude for description. They tell, anyway, of a gold-sanded stream that leads to an enchanting land of four crystal lakes, all in an easy row. Greenan's Labine, Trout and Carson. Four diadems laid down in happy abandon on a waving plush of deep green. The whole generously sprinkled with stardust. When their summer vacation was over, the Indians departed south, back again to the Papineau. Only the voice of the wild lakeland, the loon, broke the stillness of the bay. The brooding signs of the pines in the forest answered the wash of the wavelets on the sand beaches as the centuries told on. Then a lonely cabin appeared on the shore of the bay, right where St. Hedrick's church now stands. A white man by the name of Barry, a foreman for McLaughlin's, had constructed it as his headquarters. That was about 1863 or 1864, when the Opiongo Road was being completed as far as the bay and when the surrounding townships were being surveyed. Hence the name, Barry's Bay. That was the first part of the history of Barry's Bay, published anonymously in a 1960 edition of the old Barry's Bay Review. The writer was bang on about a lot of things, but we would like to make one slight correction. It is true that a man named Barry worked in Barry's Bay in 1864 when the township of Madawaska Valley was first surveyed. But Dennis Barry didn't work for McLaughlin's. 
He was the assistant Crown Land agent for the old Opiongo Colonization Road, who first settled new immigrants in our area in the early 1860s. He came to our area in 1857 and sometimes stayed overnight in that old cabin near St. Hedwig's that was built by his older cousin, James Berry, one of the early timber cruisers, who opened up much of the Madawaska Valley to the timber trade in the 1840s and 1850s. So just to be clear, the body of water known as Berry's Bay was named after James Berry, but the village of Berry's Bay was named after Dennis Berry, his younger cousin. Though there are still some who swear both the actual bay and the village were named after all the sweet blueberries that you can still pick every summer in our area. Now for something new. Here's Julia Beggs with a list of new books that have just landed on our bookshelves and a few other new things that are happening this month at the library. This month we have seven new additions to our First Nations collection, including Chasing Painted Horses by Drew Hayden Taylor, Five Little Indians by Michelle Good, I Am Not a Number by Jenny K. Dupuis, If I Go Missing by Brianna Joni, Nakia's Knitting Needles by Sylvia Olson, and Phyllis's Orange Shirt by Phyllis Webstab. For those of you looking for something new and interactive to do at the library this month, we have two First Nations events coming this September for you and your family. On Thursday, September 16th at 10.30 a.m., we have an Indigenous drumming and teaching presentation here at the library. It's an outdoor event where children and families can listen to Native drumming and learn firsthand about our local Algonquin culture and traditions through songs, stories, and crafts. We also have something called Orange Shirt Day at the library, our own local way to honor Indigenous children who were once sent away to residential schools in Canada. It's a chance to learn more about our Canadian history by reading a book about residential schools and Indigenous peoples. A wide variety of books dealing with First Nations will be part of a special display at the library throughout September. Children who come into the library during this month will be encouraged to read a First Nations book and fill out a special coloring page available at the library indicating the book that they have read. For those interested in other new books, especially works of fiction, that have recently arrived, we now have Louise Penny's Madness of Crowds, the latest edition in her Canadian Inspector Gamache series. There's already a waiting list for it, so make sure to get your name in on it soon. For those not yet acquainted with Penny's wildly popular Canadian series, it's set in the small town of Three Pines and features an array of quirky residents and always a mystery to solve. The lead character is Detective Armand Gamache, who heads the Montreal Police Homicide Squad and who has a poet's soul and brilliant coaching and teaching skills that guide his team to solve always baffling murder cases. For those looking for another great fiction read, we have Rob Corbett's Cape Diamond. He is a well-known Ontario author of nonfiction books, including The Last Guide, a tribute to Frank Kuyak, Algonquin Park's oldest fishing guide. But Corbett's latest book, Cape Diamond, is the second novel in his Frank Yakubuski series. His first was Ragged Lake, nominated for a prestigious Edgar Award. Another new book just arrived in our library, and it's called Fight Night. It's written by Miriam Toes, the beloved author of such bestsellers as Women Talking, A Complicated Kindness, and All My Puny Sorrows. Her latest novel is funny, smart, headlong rush, full of wit, flawless writing, and a tribute to perseverance and love in an unusual family. Fight Night is told in the unforgettable voice of Swiv, a nine-year-old living in Toronto with her pregnant mother, who's raising Swiv while caring for her own elderly, frail, yet extraordinarily lively mother. When Swiv is expelled from school, Grandma takes on the role of teacher and gives Swiv a task of writing to Swiv's absent father about her home life during the last trimester of her mother's pregnancy. In turn, Swiv gives Grandma an assignment to write a letter to Gord, her unborn grandchild, and Swiv's soon-to-be brother or sister. You're a small thing, Grandma writes to Gord, and you must learn to fight. 
As Swift records her thoughts and observations, Fright Night unspools the pain, love, laughter, and above all, will to live a good life across three generations of women in a close-knit family. But it is Swift's exasperating wise and impressionable grandma who's at the heart of this novel. Someone who knows intimately what it costs to survive in this world, yet has found a way, painfully, joylessly, ferociously, to love and fight to the end on her own terms. A gripping good nonfiction read that has also just arrived on our shelves is The Empire of Pain by Patrick Rodden Keefe, the prize-winning best-selling author of Say Nothing. Keefe's new book, published by Penguin, is a grand, devastating portrait of three generations of the Sackler family, famed for their philanthropy, but whose fortune was built on the drug Valium, and whose reputation has been destroyed by oxycodone, the prescription pill at the center of the American opioid crisis. It's always nice to have new books and new things happening at the library, but most libraries are very much about older books flying out the front door, borrowed by people who have a library card, and who get to borrow them for free. And what better way to find out what's hot among those avid readers than to hear our list of what's popular in books, as well as a few other interesting treasures one can borrow. Here then is Julia Beggs with that list of books and other items you might want to sign up to borrow. Contrary to popular opinion, not everything borrowed from the library qualifies as a conventional book. Topping our list of most borrowed items are some things, well, though nowhere near a book, can still entertain and inform you just as much as any printed work of the imagination. They can even take you on some sort of magic carpet ride that is both free and very, very interactive and real. We're talking now of something few people seem to know they can get here at Barry's Bay by simply showing us your library card. I speak now of free National Museum and Ontario Provincial Park passes. How so, you ask? How can you even borrow one of these free passes? Well, that little library card that you carry in your wallet or purse entitles you to take out more than just books. It also allows you to check out one of those free museum or park passes, and while you have it in your possession, it's good for a whole week. And these passes cover more than just the entrance fee to a museum or park for the library card holder. They typically can be used for the whole family, normally up to two adults and three children. Talk about a deal. And yet, few people seem to know about them. For instance, one such pass you can get at our library is called the Ontario Parks Vehicle Permit. It allows you to take your whole family through the vehicle entrance of any Ontario provincial park where you can enjoy a morning or afternoon hike or a whole day at the beach. But there's more. We also have passes available at our library that can get you into a whole raft of national museums in nearby Ottawa. Passes for the Museum of Nature, the Museum of History, and the Canadian War Museum. Even a single pass that will get you into three of the most popular national museums in Ottawa. The Canadian Science and Technology Museum, the Canadian Aviation and Space Museum, and the Canadian Agriculture and Food Museum. For your added benefit, we also have something called the Ottawa Museum Network Pass that can get you into the Bytown Museum, the Billings Estate, and the famed Doofenbunker, just to name a few. One of our most popular passes that's often borrowed from the library is one that will get you into the Museum of Nature, located in a beautiful old building on McLeod Street in downtown Ottawa. It features a wide range of galleries and exhibits that are very popular with local families, young and old. Topping our list of most borrowed passes in 2019, sadly we don't have any figures for 2020 or 2021 as our library was largely closed due to the COVID pandemic, was the Canadian Museum of Science and Technology pass. Recently, it underwent a major renovation, and so it has lots of new and exciting hands-on exhibits. An afternoon spent at the Canadian Museum of Science and Technology will be long remembered, and dare we say it, 
almost as good as one of our classic books shelved here at the library. So don't just think of your local library as a place to borrow books. There's plenty more that we have to offer, and any one of our staff would be more than happy to help you find that one perfect pass for your family to see a great museum, provincial park, or maybe something else. There's plenty more that we have to offer, and any one of our staff would be more than happy to help you find that one perfect pass for your family to see a great museum or provincial park that will bring both joy and imagination to say little of the fun for your entire family. Still, people do borrow books with their library card, and we'd be remiss if we didn't mention at least one of the best and most popular literary works that continues to fly off our shelves. Not too surprisingly, it's one of those grand old classics, The Count of Monte Cristo by Alexander Dumas, the famed author of The Three Musketeers. Published in 1844, Dumas's The Count of Monte Cristo was first borrowed here in the library on January 30th, 1962, not too long after our library opened its doors, back when fines for overdue books were just two cents a day. Nearly 60 years later, The Count of Monte Cristo remains very popular and we expect it to remain so for decades to come. Why? Well, it's an intriguing story of a man who just wouldn't give up. Due to a false political charge, Edmond Dantes finds himself imprisoned on the island fortress of the Chateau d'If. After escaping, he finds the fabulous treasure of Monte Cristo and plots to serve it up with a wicked course of revenge against his old enemies. Revenge, as you will remember if you've ever watched Star Trek or The Godfather, is a dish best served cold. But for those in the know, that tasty expression is not something invented by Hollywood. Rather, it was coined by another Frenchman, Pierre de Lacoe, in his riveting novel, Les Liaisons Dangerous, published in 1782. So, Monsieur Domos cooks up his own 19th century revenge novel honestly, and with more than an ordinary twist of French ingredients. But boy, does he serve up his dish with a thoroughly entertaining sauciness. Finally, we have Something Blue, another one of those classic fairy tales from Andrew Lang's Blue Fairy Tale book. This week, we've got the story of a prince who fell madly in love, but had to jump through quite a few hoops before he could figure out who to trust. Have a listen to Prince Hyacinth and the Dear Little Princess, read by Rob Filipkowski. Once upon a time, there lived a king who was deeply in love with a princess, but she could not marry anyone because she was under an enchantment. So the king set out to seek a fairy and asked what he could do to win the princess's love. The fairy said to him, You know that the princess has a great cat of which she is very fond. Whoever is clever enough to tread on that cat's tail is the man she is destined to marry. The king said to himself that this would not be very difficult, and he left the fairy determined to grind the cat's tail to powder rather than not tread on it at all. You may imagine it was not long before he went to see the princess, and Puss as usual marched in before him arching his back. The king took a long step and quite thought he had the tail under his foot but the cat turned round so sharply that he only trod on air, and so it went on for eight days, till the king began to think that this fatal tale must be full of quicksilver. It was never still for a moment. At last, however, he was lucky enough to come upon Puss fast asleep, and with his tail conveniently spread out. So the king, without losing a moment, set his foot upon it heavily. With one terrific yell, the cat sprang up, and instantly changed into a tall man, who, fixing his angry eyes upon the king, said, You shall marry the princess, because you have been able to break the enchantment, but I will have my revenge. You shall have a son, who will never be happy until he finds out that his nose 
is too long, and if you ever tell anyone what I have just said to you, you shall vanish away instantly, and no one shall ever see you or hear of you again. Though the king was horribly afraid of the enchanter, he couldn't help laughing at this threat. If my son has such a long nose as that, he said to himself, he must always see it or feel it, at least if he is not blind or without hands. But as the enchanter had vanished, he didn't waste any more time in thinking, but went to see the princess, who very soon consented to marry him. But after all, they had not been married very long when the king died, and the queen had nothing left to care for but her little son, who was called Hyacinth. The little prince had large blue eyes, the prettiest eyes in the world, and a sweet little mouth. But, alas, his nose was so enormous that it covered half his face. The queen was inconsolable when she saw this great nose, but her ladies assured her that it was not really as large as it looked, that it was a Roman nose, and you only had to open any history book to see that every hero has a large nose. The queen, who was devoted to her baby, was pleased with what they told her, and when she looked at Hyacinth again, his nose certainly did not seem to her quite so large. The prince was brought up with great care, and as soon as he could speak, they told him all sorts of dreadful stories about people who had short noses. No one was allowed to come near him whose nose did not more or less resemble his own, and the courtiers, to get into favor with the queen, took to pulling their babies' noses several times every day to make them grow long. But do what they would, they were nothing by comparison with the princes. When he grew sensible, he learned history, and whenever any great prince or beautiful princess was spoken of, his teachers took care to tell them that they had long noses. His room was hung with pictures, all of people with very large noses, and the prince grew up so convinced that a long nose was a great beauty that he would not on any account have had his own a single inch shorter. When his twentieth birthday was passed, the queen thought it was time that he should be married, so she commanded that the portraits of several princesses should be brought for him to see, and among the others was a picture of the dear little princess. Now, she was the daughter of a great king, and would some day possess several kingdoms herself, but Prince Hyacinth had not a thought to spare for anything of that sort. He was so much struck with her beauty. The princess, whom he thought quite charming, had, however, a little saucy nose, which in her face was the prettiest thing possible, but it was a cause of great embarrassment to the courtiers, who had got into such a habit of laughing at little noses that they sometimes found themselves laughing at hers before they had time to think. But this did not do at all before the prince, who quite failed to see the joke, and actually banished two of his courtiers who had dared to mention disrespectfully the dear little princess's tiny nose. The others, taking warning from this, learned to think twice before they spoke, and one even went so far as to tell the prince that, Though it was quite true that no man could be worth anything unless he had a long nose, still a woman's beauty was a different thing, and he knew a learned man who understood Greek and had read in some old manuscripts that the beautiful Cleopatra herself had a tip-tilted nose. The prince made him a splendid present as a reward for this good news, and at once sent ambassadors to ask the dear little princess in marriage. The king, her father, gave his consent, and Prince Hyacinth, who, in his anxiety to see the princess, had gone three leagues to meet her, 
was just advancing to kiss her hand when, to the horror of all who stood by, the enchanter appeared as suddenly as a flash of lightning, and snatching up the dear little princess, whirled her away out of their sight. The prince was left quite unconsolable, and declared that nothing should induce him to go back to his kingdom until he had found her again, and refusing to allow any of his courtiers to follow him, he mounted his horse and rode sadly away, letting the animal choose his own path. So it happened that he came presently to a great plain, across which he rode all day long without seeing a single house, and horse and rider were terribly hungry, when, as the night fell, the prince caught sight of a light which seemed to shine from a cavern. He rode up to it and saw a little old woman who appeared to be at least a hundred years old. She put on her spectacles to look at Prince Hyacinth, but it was quite a long time before she could fix them securely because her nose was so very short. The prince and the fairy, for that was who she was, had no sooner looked at one another than they burst into fits of laughter and cried at the same moment, Oh, what a funny nose! Not so funny as your own, said Prince Hyacinth to the fairy. But, madam, I beg you to leave the consideration of our noses, such as they are, and to be good enough to give me something to eat, for I am starving, and so is my poor horse. With all my heart, said the fairy, though your nose is so ridiculous, you are, nevertheless, the son of my best friend. I loved your father as if he had been my brother. Now he had a very handsome nose. And pray, what does mine lack? said the prince. Oh, it doesn't lack anything, replied the fairy. On the contrary, there's only too much of it. But never mind. One may be a very worthy man, though his nose is too long. I was telling you that I was your father's friend. He often came to see me in the old times. And you must know that I was very pretty in those days. At least he used to say so. I should like to tell you of a conversation we had the last time I ever saw him. Indeed, said the prince, when I have supped it will give me the greatest pleasure to hear it. But consider, madam, I beg of you, that I have had nothing to eat today. The poor boy is right, said the fairy. I was forgetting. Come in then, and I will give you some supper. And while you are eating I can tell you my story in a very few words, for I don't like endless tales myself. Too long a tongue is worse than too long a nose. And I remember when I was young that I was so much admired for not being a great chatterer. They used to tell the queen, my mother, that it was so. For though you see what I am now, I was the daughter of a great king. My father, your father, I dare say, got something to eat when he was hungry, interrupted the prince. Oh, certainly, answered the fairy. And you shall also have supper directly. I only just wanted to tell you, but I really cannot listen to anything until I have had something to eat, cried the prince was getting quite angry. But then, remembering that he had better be polite, as he much needed the fairy's help, he added, I know that in the pleasure of listening to you I should quite forget my own hunger, but my horse, who cannot hear you, must really be fed. The fairy was very much flattered by this compliment, and said, calling to her servants, You shall not wait another minute. You are so polite, and in spite of the enormous size of your nose, you are really very agreeable. Plague take the old lady, how she does go on about my nose, said the prince to himself. One would almost think that mine had taken all the extra length that hers lacks. If I were not so hungry, I would soon have done with this chatter pie who thinks she talks very little. How stupid people are not to see their own faults. That comes of being a princess. She has been spoiled by flatterers who have made her believe that she is quite a moderate talker. 
Meanwhile, the servants were putting the supper on the table, and the prince was much amused to hear the fairy, who asked them a thousand questions, simply for the pleasure of hearing herself speak. Especially he noticed one maid who, no matter what was being said, always contrived to praise her mistress's wisdom. Well, he thought, as he ate his supper, I'm very glad I came here. This just shows me how sensible I have been in never listening to flatterers. People of that sort praise us to our faces without shame and hide our faults or change them into virtues. For my part, I hope I never will be taken in by them. I know my own defects, I hope. Poor Prince Hyacinth. He really believed what he said and hadn't an idea that the people who had praised his nose were laughing at him, just as the fairy's maid was laughing at her. For the prince had seen her laugh slyly when she could do so without the fairies noticing her. However, he said nothing. And presently, when his hunger began to be appeased, the fairy said, My dear prince, might I beg you to move a little more that way? For your nose casts such a shadow that I really cannot see what I have on my plate. Ah, thanks. Now, let us speak of your father. When I went to his court, he was only a little boy. But that is forty years ago, and I have been in this desolate place ever since. Tell me what goes on nowadays. Are the ladies as fond of amusement as ever? In my time one saw them at parties, theatres, balls and promenades every day. Dear me, what a long nose you have. I cannot get used to it. Really, madam, said the prince, I wish you would leave off mentioning my nose. It cannot matter to you what it is like. I am quite satisfied with it and have no wish to have it shorter. One must take what is given one. Now you are angry with me, my poor Hyacinth, said the fairy, and I assure you that I didn't mean to vex you. On the contrary, I wished to do you a service. However, though I really cannot help your nose being a shock to me, I will try not to say anything about it. I will even try to think that you have an ordinary nose. To tell the truth, it would make three reasonable ones. The prince, who was no longer hungry, grew so impatient at the fairy's continual remarks about his nose that at last he threw himself upon his horse and rode hastily away. But wherever he came in his journeyings, he thought the people were mad, for they all talked of his nose, and yet he could not bring himself to admit that it was too long. He had been so used all his life to hear it called handsome. The old fairy, who wished to make him happy, at last hit upon a plan. She shut the dear little princess up in a palace of crystal and put this palace down where the prince would not fail to find it. His joy at seeing the princess again was extreme, and he set to work with all his might to try to break her prison. But in spite of all of his efforts, he failed utterly. In despair, he thought at least that he would try to get near enough to speak to the dear little princess, who on her part stretched out her hand that he might kiss it. But turn which way he might, he never could raise it to his lips, for his long nose always prevented it. For the first time he realized how long it really was, and exclaimed, Well, it must be admitted that my nose is too long. In an instant, the crystal prison flew into a thousand splinters, and the old fairy, taking the dear little princess by the hand, said to the prince, Now, say if you are not very much obliged to me. Much good it was for me to talk to you about your nose. You would never have found out how extraordinary it was if it hadn't hindered you from doing what you wanted to. 
You see how self-love keeps us from knowing our own defects of mind and body. Our reason tries in vain to show them to us. We refuse to see them till we find them in the way of our interests. Prince Hyacinth, whose nose was now just like anyone else's, did not fail to profit by the lesson he had received. He married the dear little princess, and they lived happily ever after. And there you have it, folks, the latest episode of Old, New, Borrowed Blue. We hope you enjoyed it, and we hope you will not only join us next month for the October episode of Old, New, Borrowed Blue, but we also hope you drop by and check out our digital services, children's programs, if not to borrow a free book or two. You'll find us at 19474 Opiongo Line in Barry's Bay. And you can find out when we're open, along with a whole lot of other interesting things about your local library, by checking out our website at matawaskavalleylibrary.ca. I'm Karen Filipkowski, the CEO and Chief Librarian here at the Matawaska Valley Public Library. And from myself, our staff, our Board of Directors, as well as our good friends at the Opiongo Line and the Station Keepers Matawaska Valley, we'd like to wish you a good day and a good gripping read. <laughs>